The following podcast contains language that is not suitable for everybody. I got interrupted on the toilet today, and I cannot find my rhythm. So you were on the toilet? Yeah. I I wasn't going to say any names of who interrupted me on the toilet, but somebody was basically, they knocked their way into a door. You know how, like, it's the most pointless knock in the world, because you're just knocking and opening at the same time. You're you're standing and looking at me, still knocking on the door. And you were mid-poop. I'm actively pooping. Did you not lock the door behind you? Of itself locks. It was fully locked. You she need had a key. key to open it. <laughs> she went and found the hidden key because she's like, "Oh, the keys are gone. That's weird. Ho hum. That probably doesn't mean somebody's using the bathroom or anything." I thought you were in the employee bathroom. No, public Which... restroom. And so she's knocking while she's opening the door. And were you just like, uh, "Excuse like, me, excuse me"? At first, I said, "Oh, it's one second. And then I said, "No, no, no!" Did she? Do you think she got a peek? She might have gotten a peek. Oh, God. Lucky lady. Oh, yeah, I was. So I don't the... know how her day's going now. She's probably having a great day. Yeah. She... I feel like my circadian rhythms have been completely thrown off. Yeah. I had a, I, like I said, I had a customer walk through the employee only area of the store and into the staff back, bathroom in the back. Yeah. As I'm sitting there. And I don't lock that door ever because. Why? Because if the staff bathroom is shut, you assume someone's in there or you knock. And he just like. Oh, no knock. Just whoop right open. And I'm sitting on the can, <laughs> crowning my way to victory. And he was just like, oh, I guess I'm not supposed to be back here. No, you walked through a th- door that says employees only on it and then just entered a, ran- a door. You just opened a door. I'm just, the whole point of my whole story is, is a public service announcement for you, the listener. If you're going to knock, <laughs> wait a second. Just wait one second. <laughs> you just see Nick. No, 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 no. Thank you for tuning in to Super Skull, your weekly new comic day audio digest brought to you by Vault of Midnight, Earth's finest comic books, and so on. My name is Nick Weibar. I'm here this week with Rachel Polk. Hey! And Marcus Schwimmer. Good eve, fine sir. How are your guys' rhythms today? My rhythm's all right. I got the rhythm. I got the rock. I'm glad we can just let that sit for a moment. Rachel, you're sitting in for Curtis Sullivan. I am. Who is, what is he, under the weather? I don't think it's any of our business. Okay. What, where, what he is or where he is. I think he's having a pool day. He's got his water wings on. No, he's having a sweet pool party. Oh, I think he's man. just floating around. Yeah, he's got like a, a duck floaty. Yeah. Yeah. Have you guys ever seen Curtis in his little swim wings? I've never seen Curtis. His little inflatable swing oh. wings? No, do they? I imagine they, they're bedazzled, though. Where's his cowboy hat? His <laughs> tiny cowboy hat and his little uh, swimming wingdings. Yep. Because, well, his hat makes him feel safe. <laughs> and then his little the inflatable wingdings make him feel powerful. <laughs> yeah. Those are for fashion. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's what I think Curtis is just having a pool day. Yeah. That'd be, that's a nice thought. I hope he is. This is warm out, too. It is gross. Soak it up, buddy. Mm-hmm. We're going to go ahead and do a podcast without him, and we're going to start out with... Everybody's favorite segment, the never requested in the news. This week in the news, <laughs> uh, we don't have a, a ton for the news this week. We're going to note, for some reason, the film Suicide Squad dropped 
from Weekend 1 to Weekend 2, which is roughly on par with the Batman versus Superman drop, which was 69%. Ouch. You know, they're starting a tradition, and I, I respect that. That's their thing. <laughs> That's their thing. It's <laughs> At like, least they're consistent. You know, we're going to make like an okay amount of money week one. Yeah. And then week two, we're just going to move on to the next thing. But isn't it... That was like a crazy expensive movie to make. It was a crazy expensive movie to make, and apparently with marketing and all told, the movie needs to make about 750 to $800 million to break even. That's terrifying. Where are they it, at now? It's pulled in about half of that. Um, and again, it's only it's only interesting to me because there's always this thing when these movies come out of like, book the critics. What do they know? They're up on their high horse. They don't understand what we the people like apple pie, <laughs> cold beer. Cowboy hats. Cowboy hats. And this is, it, it, no matter what, from one weekend to the next, like it usually tends to, to catch up with, oh, with bad movies. I love how yeah. you just insulted half of the country. Like, do you like cold beer? Do you like apple pie? Do you occasionally wear whoa, a whoa, cowboy whoa, hat? Whoa, 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 whoa. I love you. all of those things, and I'm wearing a cowboy hat right now, and you know that. It's a it nice is, Denson. It is really nice. But my, my point is, yeah. is that there's always this kind of reaction again. I didn't mean to sound like... <laughs> Fuck you, the dude, middle America. The dude that I am. <laughs> but there, I, I did, it, there is kind of this sense that like whatever the critics say, there was like literally talk about trying to get reviews redacted yeah. on Whoa, Rotten Tomatoes and shit really? because of Suicide Squad. people don't understand shit. how the internet works. But also it's like word of mouth also has an effect mm-hmm. on from one weekend to the next. Yeah. Um, I am going to go see Suicide Squad a second time. Uh, I still haven't seen it a second time yet. And I'm really excited to. Have you get you, Mark have, has seen it. Rachel, you've not, not seen, seen it, it yet. No. You're in for a treat. I, yeah, I believe it. it I want to go with another Vault of Midnight employee. It's interesting because, like, as you guys know, I'm never for a loss of words. It's a rare occasion. But God we, knows, you know, when customers come in, we, you know, even if we don't 100 percent agree with them, we try to put a good twist on stuff. We want everyone yeah. to feel welcome. This dude came in literally this morning and was like, "I think Jared Leto's the best Joker I've ever seen." And I just sat there like a deer in headlights. I was like, "How do I spin this?" Yeah, How, and I was like, think, "Man, think." I, I was just like, "Cool!" Like I didn't just say I could come up with something to respond to that, and I, I feel really bad about it. Hey it, Nick, it, yes. Um, so the new Suicide Squad Rebirth just came out like what last week? Within the past couple weeks, wasn't it today? That was, was today? that was Suicide Squad number one. Oh, Suicide the Rebirth Squ- special. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It came out uh, two weeks ago. With that. Okay. How do you think that has done because of the movie? That's it's a really good question. I haven't seen any sales numbers for it. Um, it's good at Vault of Midnight. I, I bet you it's in top five. You think it's going to be in top five? Yep. I wonder if that data is out yet. Well, so I know that our subscription list for it is not actually super huge, but I'm wondering if the because the movie has not been super well received. If people are kind of steering away from the new comic, now. I don't think it matters. I think the I think the people who saw that movie week one are still really juiced about it, and I mean we've sold a good amount of that book, and I think it I think it's purely like there is a fan base for Suicide Squad. There's no mm-hmm. questioning it. I mean, just today we have so many people coming in picking up Suicide Squad number one, picking up Harley Quinn number two, and they're juiced. So like, whether that movie continues to make a lot of money or not. The fandom has come out. We don't have the current data on those uh, Suicide Squad books quite yet. Yeah. But Marcus, I think your point is completely valid. Thank you. You're wow. welcome. 
the rare, that does, that the rare valid point. Yeah, once again, speechless. But what, what, you know, Nick, you have the numbers up. What was the number one book in July? The number one book in July, Justice League number one. N- not surprised. And I the, remember someone on this podcast loved that book. I am very surprised that it wasn't Batman. Seems like the people agree with me. We're also looking at Justice League Rebirth number one is in the number two spot. Nice. Big month for DC, though. Yeah, it seems like it. Big month for DC in general. DC's uh, did, it actually ended up topping Marvel's market share in July. That has not happened in quite some that time. That has not happened in a very long time. But we're looking at uh, twice a month books that, yeah. are, that are pulling in big numbers. And so that'll do it. Rebirth has been good. Like, a lot of those Rebirth books. It's are... definitely been coming out. Coming out right on time. Come on. Some of it's been great. Some of it's been really great. And, uh, you know, right now, even with Suicide Squad and Batman v Superman, mm-hmm. like, just talking to people in the comic shop, a lot of people are really juiced about DC. Yeah. And, and this Rebirth has been, I think, a really smart move, as much as we poo-pooed it. Um, the, I mean, people who I've never seen have a DC book on their poll are getting four, five, six rebirth books right well, now. Well, it's and, nice and, that, you know, it's actually a place to jump in. Yeah. Whereas, like, you would have had to find issues from five years ago. I think the other thing is, like, they just they acquired some really good talent. And, uh, you know, they're putting those people to work. Twice a month comic capped at two ninety nine is brilliant. Eight out of ten for the top ten comics in July 2016 are DC books. I believe it. Rachel, what's your favorite DC rebirth book? Wonder Woman. Hands down. Wonder Woman? Oh, yeah. Didn't even have to think about it. Nope. Greg That's the end of that. That's the end of that. <laughs> uh, Wonder Woman tied with Batman. I mean, Straight up Batman? Tom King is awesome. But that being said, All-Star Batman came out, uh, what, last week? Mm-hmm. That was really, really cool. I love that book so much. Yeah. Scott Snyder is awesome. And I have to say, I'm super excited to see um, Paul Pope on another Batman book. I'm excited to see Marcus shaking his head on an audio podcast. Well, it just means we have to wait. Through six issues of John Romita Jr.'s subpar art before we get to anything. I think it was shining through, though. Yeah. What are you talking about? The quality of that book was shining through that it's very Scott, mediocre art. Scott Snyder carried me through. You, you don't think so? I mean, it's a great story. Scott Snyder's a wonderful writer. I know, and it has to be real. I'm, th- I'm saying that's how good the writing was that it made me... Like being, a- I was able to read that book, which was otherwise pretty hard to look at because of JRJR stuff. Anyway, yeah, we've 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 uh, already we've dealt with JRJR. Yes, we have. In, Good point. In previous episodes, uh, you guys want to do some big picks? Let's do it. Every week, there are a number of bathrooms for you to barge in on, mm-hmm. but only some of those bathrooms have other humans in it, waiting to elicit a perfect reaction. Mm-hmm. These comics are those glorious bathrooms. Well, except. What was your pick this week? <laughs> you get the honor of the first pick because Thank of you. that, because that was so excellent. Um, so my pick this week is Supergirl Rebirth Special Number One. It's a book I've been looking forward to. I did not care much for Supergirl uh, before this last year, but I got hooked on the new TV show. That is because you're intimidated by strong women? That is the second time you've said that in 48 hours, and I don't think it's true. So that's not that's not the case. That's not why you were not a fan of Supergirl before. I was not a fan of Supergirl before because when I started reading comics in the late 90s, early 2000s, there wasn't a lot of good Supergirl out there. Mm. And uh, now they, they have the successful TV show, it's moving over to the CW with the rest of the DC TV universe. And um, 
I went into this book hoping that it was going to tie into the television show and give me some more backdrop into that universe. But it's a completely original story that has nothing to do with the show, and I'm actually pretty happy for it. Um, I've said it before, and I'll say it again. I think Superman, the rebirth uh, line of Superman, is one of my favorite books out right now. Um, and Supergirl does a lot of the stuff that maybe you would expect in a Superman book, um, but isn't there right now. So it's filling a little bit of the gap. Like what? Uh, this book is full of Krypton jargle. It's and very I, cryptish. It's very just a lot of background oh into Kryptonian God. culture. Mm-hmm. I think that shit's really cool. I think the whole Krypton culture and society, and I think it's one thing that makes the super family really interesting, is this Kryptonian, uh, you know, backstory. And they get into it in the start of this book, and I really dig it. Um, but essentially, this book starts out, Supergirl has lost her powers, and they're not really sure why. And so they are shooting her into space to get her closer to the sun so that she can, like, kickstart her powers. Uh, in doing that, they release an evil force that was trapped by Kryptonians of ancient time. Yeah, that, what is it? So they, in order to, they had to make, like, a Phantom Zone-powered something in order to shoot her to the sun. Yeah. And because they, they because it was using a Phantom Zone engine, there was a little bit of a leak, and a dude escaped out of the Phantom it's Zone. It's so cool. Yeah. I love it. Is that, that part was pretty cool. It's great. I mean, that's, like, great Superman shit. Yeah. And and they dove right into it, and they didn't dumb it down. Um, and, like, they get... They didn't dumber it down. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> but I love seeing flashbacks to Krypton. I always have. Like, they, they always, you know, their culture's really interesting. They put them in, like, a different kind of attire. And I like to see different artists take on that. Um, and, and they get really into it. Um, I, you know, the, the book had a, a little bit of similarity to the TV show. They did tie it in. You know, kind of the stories made them a little similar so that those of us who have been watching the show had some kind of backstory. So now I'm hearing two different things. So you said it's so it's not a part of that universe. Correct. It's not tied to that universe. But maybe you saw some threads, some thematic threads Correct. between the two of them. Absolutely. OK. Yeah. And I, I just I thought it was great. I thought it was a really fun story. Um, I loved all the Krypton stuff they did. And she's just uh, the more I learn about her, the more I read and watch her on TV, the more I like her as a character. So, yeah, I would highly recommend checking out Supergirl Rebirth number one. Nick, we were kind of talking about it before. You were not as big of a fan of this. Well, I just, I didn't get a lot from Supergirl out of this. She seemed pretty two dimensional. She just, like, she didn't say anything until halfway through the book when she just comes in a punching. Yeah. And uh, then every time she opens her mouth, I I just don't know anything about Supergirl from this as a character. And I'm not super well, I don't watch the show. Yeah. So I'm not very well versed in Supergirl. Um, I agree with you. I do like. Shit about Krypton. Yeah. I like that shit a lot. I Does anybody else want to watch a detective show set on Krypton? Yes. Oh, man. Absolutely. That'd be awesome. It's just, like, just pick one city. That'd be so cool. Yeah. But like, I thought we did get a little bit out, out of her. Like She interacts with her parents a little bit, and there's like a really great segment um, after the, the monster kind of attacks, the monster of the book attacks. Um, humanity like the humans that she's hanging out with are cleaning up the rubble and she's like guys i can do this in like three seconds like it'd be no problem at all and there's a great little scene of dialogue we're like no like you need to see that there's work involved here and it's our labor and our sweat and uh i thought that was really interesting to see i thought that was a little cheese dick i it was a little cheesy but (laughs) i I also kind of liked it it. yeah i thought it i thought it did you read this rachel i didn't finish it I will be. <laughs> you bailed on pretty it. Pretty honest, I suffered through that artwork. That's the other thing. She's very. It's like she's. It's a very much like 
perfect blonde haired. Well, it's more than Barbie that. Doll. It's like the, the anatomy is just not good. Yeah. I, I, Especially when she flies, there are definitely some issues. And uh, I mean, you know, this is an issue that I've had with DC, especially with like the Justice League rebirth. It was super posy. Mm-hmm. Like every other panel is just a pose. There's a lot of it is a lot of stuff with her with her fist in the air. Yeah. And the other thing is, you know, she I says just... that's how super people fly. Like, yeah, and I'm I've fucking seen it and I'm over it. Oh yeah. come. It's a lot. I've come on. At the end of the book, she flies away with a rainbow behind her. I'm saying. That's awesome. That's like classic super family. I don't think that's awesome. Oh, you guys are full of malarkey. So what age do you think this is targeted at? Might definitely be targeted a little bit younger. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and that, the that's thing, true. Which is something that kind of is surprising considering the rest of Rebirth. Almost all of the titles that are in Rebirth, I wouldn't give to someone under the age of 13, 14. Mm-hmm. I, think, I think it's a very accessible book. It's rated T, not T+, which a lot of the Rebirth books have been rated T+. Yes. So, yeah, I think it's great. I think she's a cool character. I think it's neat that they're putting out material that younger audiences can read. Thus, thus, thus speaketh Supergirl. Marcus. Yes. Also, I just wanted to point out real quick. This is not your big pick. This is an ancillary pick. An ancillary pick. Um, during all of this uh, Marvel Civil War stuff, there's been a little series that hasn't got a lot of attention. It's called Gods of War. Mm. It's a sub-series with Hercules and Gilgamesh and kind of his crew. Hercules, the book, has been one of my favorites for a while now. And um, this Gods of War book is really excellent, and not a lot of people are reading it. But essentially, the new gods have come, and Hercules is trying to like deal with it in the midst of Civil War. But it also deals with him... Uh, having a drinking problem and like trying to get over that. Mm-hmm. Does he still love cereal? He, yeah, yes, he still loves cereal. But um, he's been kind of shunned by the Avengers and he's trying to redeem himself through the story. There's a really great scene in this book between Captain America and Hercules. And I just, it's a wonderful book and I wish more people would check it out. Written by my dude Dan Abnett. Do they hug or touch? Uh, they fight. So yes. So yes. Did you read The Fallen number one? I did. That was another Civil War spinoff. Uh... Not to spoil what's going on in there. There's a scene where a bunch of uh, people go to a funeral together, and Hercules is there. And it made me giggle that like everybody's in like formal black suits, and then there's Hercules, who's like pretty much naked. Hercules has no time for suits. All that time he would take him, he has to. Yeah, but he's got like six belts. Yeah, you got to hold all that magic equipment. Yeah, I know, but like, like you don't have belt. time for a suit, but you have time for six belts. That's I'm just saying. Yeah. So Marcus's big pick was Supergirl Rebirth Special number one, right? Correct. Cool. Rachel, what was your pick this week? My pick this week, and I know Marcus is going to make fun of me, is called The Backstagers, issue number one. What's this book about? Uh, this book, which is uh, written by James Tinian IV, who you will know from Batman, Batman Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, uh, mostly like darker stuff. Uh, it's an it's his first try at an all ages book, um, and it is about a kid who goes to a new school, an all boys school, and like can't make friends. So he is kind of looking around trying to join an after school group, mm-hmm. and he finds the theater kids. And uh, by finding the theater kids, he realizes just how crazy they all are. Uh, and then he finds the backstage crew, and it's it's a very fun kind of like Steven Universe feeling book. How in what way? Um, well, the artwork first of all is 
uh, done by this guy, Ryan Sai, who hasn't done like a whole lot um, in terms of like published works, but he actually, he does a lot of the Rick and Morty covers. Uh-huh. Um, and he like is very present on the internet, uh, especially like his Tumblr is very popular. Um, but it it's very cutesy. It's um, it does have a Steven Universe vibe. Yeah, it has a Steven Universe Scott Pilgrim kind of which, look to it. Which is like it's interesting because it's like a it's like a take on a, a specific type of anime. Yeah, it's like it's. But this is a take on that take. Almost Americanized chibi. Yeah. Kind of. Um, but it's it's a very adorable story. This kid is not enjoying this school and so he goes and like pops into the drama club and he sees what's up and he meets these two brothers who are like they're like mythical beings because they are so far up above everybody else and they're the best actors actors. yeah they're actors and because this is a new kid who would only get the ensemble role they send him off to go to the backstage prop crew Mm -hmm. and find a tiara that you know they were supposed to deliver and I uh, I identify with this book a lot because I did theater a lot. Were you uh, you were backstage crew? I did both. I started oh, okay. out on theater on stage and then I moved to backstage work. So I understand both sides of this, mm-hmm. and there stems my full blown hatred of actors. But they have a kind of <laughs> like there's a supernatural thing going. There on. absolutely is because like, backstage is also home to some impossible. Creatures. Yeah, backstage is like a very like Adventure Time kind of thing where like, um, it's constantly changing. The rooms are constantly changing, and like these weird mythical beings appear all the time. So like, not only are the backstage kids building sets and like making props and stuff like that, but they're also like badass uh, superheroes in some way, and they're like constantly fighting these like weird monsters. Or like, there's there's a little boy in it who is. Super adorable, and instead of like fighting these rat monsters, he like takes one and adopts it and names it Friendo and puts a hat on it and carries it around like a cat. And nobody else gives a shit about what happens backstage, oh, no. so they don't know. Nobody knows what weird things yeah. are happening, and nobody cares to learn. Right. Uh, and my favorite is the electrician. Yeah. At one point, you meet the lighting designer who is who's like a mad scientist putting together lights until you know everybody can see all the monsters. It's. It was very, very cute, and it addressed uh, a lot of what you would actually see in theater, um, because James Tinian actually did do theater when he was uh, in, I believe, high school, maybe middle school. Ooh. Yeah. He, w- way to do some podcast research. I did, yeah. He, um, and I read an interview um, when they announced that this was coming out about, like, you know, he's known for doing a lot of darker stuff. He's... Like I said, he did a bunch of Batman stuff. He had a huge hand in the Batman Robin stuff that happened last year, and now he's doing detective comics. Um, but you know, he's done a bunch of other stuff for Boom Studios and um in this interview he talks about how it was super super important to him to make a queer-friendly comic for boys. Because right now Lumberjanes is the biggest shit. And actually, um Shannon Waters uh, is an editor on this, and she does the Lumberjanes. Yeah, he he talked briefly about how Lumberjanes has been super important to youth, especially the female community. Um, um, and he was saying that uh, Lumberjanes focuses only on girls, which is, yeah, that's something that the industry really needs. But at the same time, we cannot neglect the fact that there are 
young boys who are dealing with stuff like this and who wanted to address it specifically, which is pretty cool. Like he is like, you know, he's paying attention. Yeah. And it's um, you can you get that if you want to read into it. Yeah. And it's extremely friendly and conscious of mm-hmm. it. And as you're reading the book, but it's not a message book. No, it's not about look at these characters, look at look, acknowledge the fact that they are queer and they have their own comic book. Yeah. It's just like in the same way the Lumberjanes does, in the same way that smart yeah. writers it's do it. It's just like you know they're there. This is yeah, this happens to be for these characters. This happens to be part of who they are. It's yeah. not all of what they are. It, it, was, it was. I thought that was kind of neat. Yeah, I thought it was very cute. Marcus, did you read it? I did. I read it cover to cover. And what did you think? I enjoyed it quite a bit. Um, it was interesting. I, you know, I didn't know a lot about theater mm-hmm. in high school because I was part of the D and D crowd. Mm. Well, that's pretty much what happens. And the two <laughs> didn't mix. Oh, really? Um, yeah, we just like a, a lot of my friends were in pit orchestra, but never on theater. Mm. But either way, um, <laughs> yeah, we Nerd. were we were that cool. Um, but. I thought it was great. I thought it had great pacing. I think it's very accessible. Yeah. Um, and I love, like, anything that kind of falls in that Lumberjanes genre. Mm-hmm. And I love that Lumberjanes is a big enough deal now to kind of be a genre. I didn't even think about that at all, but it, it just totally is. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's of that cloth, which is very cool. Yeah. Um, I'm all about it. I, I hope that a ton of people read it. Yeah. Uh, theater Kids, still a mystery to me. <laughs> Maybe always. I have to um, say also, the lettering in this is awesome. I would... You know, every time I'm on the podcast, I have to say something about lettering. Yeah, I was going to ask you. If you didn't say something about it, I was going to ask you about the lettering. Um, How was the lettering? Man, Jim Campbell, who he did the lettering for all of the Over the Garden Wall comics. Mm -hmm. Absolutely excellent. Every time. That guy knows exactly what he's doing, and I'm pretty sure he hand draws all of his balloons, which is wonderful. And I, like I, I have mentioned time and time again that Ryan Sai, who did the artwork, did a phenomenal job. But it's more than that. You can tell that him and Jim Campbell work together on this book. And I really, really appreciate that because that doesn't happen a lot in comics anymore. Very cool. Cool. Backstagers. Yeah. That's from Boom. Yep. The Boom Box, the uh, young, I guess that's kind of like their teen imprint. Right, because Kaboom is their all ages, ages. little kid. And then Boom Box is like mid, not not yet a woman. Not a girl. That's right. Aged. Nick, what'd you pick this week? Jesus fucking Christ. I read Briggsland. It's uh, a new book from Dark Horse. Uh, Brian Wood wrote it. Mac Chater drew it. Great name. Um, this is... So Brian Wood, where do we know Brian Wood from? Rebels. Um, yes. Northlanders. Awesome. Heck yeah. Starve. DMZ. Yeah. He really made his name on DMZ. Uh, which is a book that came out maybe 10 years ago now or more. Really? Yeah. Wow. It's a cool book. Richard yeah, Polk wasn't even old. born when that book what came out. What are you talking about? <laughs> and Rude. since DMZ has come out, Brian Wood has written a ton of stuff and he's worked on some really big company books and he's written a lot of independently owned stuff and he's been kind of all over the map and I go through phases of being super burnt out on Brian Wood. Um, in particular... What was that one? The Massive. Yeah. That was yeah. the first one that of his, because I was, I was on board for Brian Wood in the same way that I was on board for like Brian K. Vaughn even. Like mm-hmm. whatever this dude does, I'm going to read it. The Massive was the first one that I was like, okay, I've lost the thread of this a little bit. Did that, that happen right before Rebels, right? 
Yeah, so that was before Rebels. Yeah. He's picking up steam again. Rebels is great. Rebels is phenomenal. He's writing this book called Black Road and right now, which is, again, oh, about I Vikings. I really love that book. It's phenomenal. It's so good. And this is his newest one. And I got to say, this is probably the strongest like first issue I've read from. And I've read, at this point, he's written... I don't even know, maybe 20 books, yeah. something like that. And I've read as much as I can. This is the strongest first issue I've read from him, and I don't even know how long. Didn't an issue of Black Road come out this week? Yes, it did. Man, he put out two books on the same week. So this is the other thing. is, Yeah, dude's working. Yeah, he's, that's really cool. He's putting out a lot of stuff. So uh, Briggsland, USA, is 100 square miles of rural wilderness owned and controlled by the Briggs family. It's a community of anti-government secessionists. I'm reading from the inside cover here. For generations, the Briggs clan, they were content to live free and peaceful lives. But with the the rise of religious extremism in the age of terror, their activities have turned criminal. So this is the story of um, Jim Briggs. He's in prison. And his wife, Grace, has uh, been more or less running the family. She's the head. She's been ostensibly going to prison to get instructions from him on what he wants done, but she's making a power play, and it's revealed in the first couple of pages that maybe he's he's turned state's evidence. He's he's becoming a witness for the state, Mm -hmm. and um, he can't be trusted anymore. So the the story opens up on her telling Jim Briggs, her husband, the patriarch of this huge clan of secessionists, "Hey, uh, I'm taking over. Have a great time in prison." So now we have to contend with the three Briggs boys, her three sons, who all have very different personalities and all have very different roles inside the family. It's really, really interesting. Mm -hmm. The whole book is about her calling a family meeting. She's just trying to get a family meeting together so she can bring all the boys together, start to work out some of this stuff, because it's a big crime syndicate, but it's also like a small village. Right. The, the Briggs land is like a self-sustained community of like maybe hundreds of people, we don't really know yet, that all live here. And this the Briggs family lives in the big house on the property, and they are responsible for keeping this whole thing afloat. Um, she herself is not a white supremacist weirdo. She's not a secessionist necessarily, though one of her sons is, and it Possibly her husband is the biggest jerk of all. Right. She's really just into like the self-sustainability of the whole thing. Like she comes out and says that she wants to, she just wants to like not have any debt and not owe anybody and just like do their own thing. And she wants her her own family to be completely self-sustained. At least that's what we know so far. Anyway, I thought it was really, really neat. It's kind of a crime book, kind of a neat take on um, the, the crime idea. And it's all focused on these... You know, these kind of, you would almost call them like Branch Davidians in some ways. It's kind of like David Koresh, but minus the religious stuff. What did you think of this, Marcus? I liked it a lot. I was a little worried. Sometimes when Brian Wood does topical, Mm -hmm. he doesn't do it very well. Starve is the book I'm thinking of. Mm -hmm. He kind of saw this Anthony Bourdain character that's very, very kind of out right now and and went with it. And I didn't think that book turned out real great. Um, and same with, so that was my worry with Briggsland is this is something we're kind of hearing about in the news. Um, and now here we are with a book that's, that's about that, that kind of type of culture. And this is akin to like the Oregonian right. secessionists or whatever it is those dudes are doing out yeah. there. Yeah. Um, but I loved it. Brian, uh, Wood is one of the best character writers in the business. Yeah. He can develop a character and make you understand kind of their base principles 
faster and more eloquently than just about anyone. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I love this. You and I both love the book Southern Bastards. Yes. And I got a little whiff of Southern Bastards mm-hmm. in, in this in this book because it's family. Right. It's tough. It's rural. Exactly. Those are the. Is that where you're getting? Yeah. At? Yeah. It shares some similar themes, mm-hmm. but then it's set in this just fascinating cultural mix-up. Yeah. And uh, I'm I'm definitely going to continue to read it. Um, and a first issue like this is really tough. You've got to introduce a lot. I mean, there's eight character, like pretty crucial characters that get introduced in this book, and it the, he does it pretty effortlessly. Like it lo- it's pretty seamless the way he folds all of these people into the story. Right. Even with a cliche FBI character that is explaining who everybody is as the story, like he somehow makes that work really, really well. He's he's incredibly gifted. And if if you pick this book up and you like it and you haven't read Rebels. I highly encourage you to do it. I think Rebels is some of his his best stuff. And um and it's all because of his ability to write really interesting, really great characters. I'll also say I want to see what you thought about this, Rachel, but I'll also say that I thought Mac Chater, um, I had a hard time telling the dudes apart. Yeah, I it's, did too. It's a lot of white guys with short hair and and you know, it's a skinhead thing, maybe, Red, all kind of vaguely redneck looking with yeah. assault rifles. I had a hard time telling who was who by the end of the book. And there's even a moment at the end of the book that I think is supposed to be pretty important and impactful that mm-hmm. I had to like go back and read to make sure I knew who, what I was looking at. Yeah, and I got that too. But can we all agree that this is the cover of the week? Oh, this is a badass oh cover. Oh my God, it's so cover. good. Yeah, so this is Grace Briggs, hands on her hips, gun uh, in her... What do you holster. call that thing? Holster. 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 A l- army of secessionists behind her. Uh, yeah, it was. This yeah, is and it's like Tula watercolor. Lote. Yeah, I love Tula Lote. Yeah. So much. But it's, it, yeah, it's all watercolor with a very rosy pink palette, uh, which is not what you would expect. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a great book. Briggsland. Very, very good. Yep. And I was very impressed by the amount of weird and unexpected twists that he was able to fit into one single issue. I'm saying it was a packed first yeah, issue. It was. It it's I mean, you know, what is this? It's a standard first issue of no, oh, it's not numbered. Yeah, whatever. It's 32 pages. Yeah, it's, it's not oversized yeah, or anything. But it it reads like it's, you know, mm-hmm. heavier like a 50. Just because there's so much stuff in it and the dialogue is awesome. Agreed. Yeah, like it it reads very very naturally. Um, yeah, I guess, you know, I had a little bit of a hard time figuring out who was who at times, but I mean, that's just art. Yeah. I think the power of this book is that like, this is a group of people that normally I wouldn't give a shit about. Like this idea of like people trying to secede from the United States. And if you tie them into kind of the popular culture <laughs> what right did now. I say I was telling you about this book. <laughs> yeah. I was like, oh, cause we got a preview of this probably like a month ago and I read it and I, so I saw that it came out yesterday and Marcus and I were working together. I was like, oh, this book's coming out. It's really good. And Marcus was like, what's it about? And I told him and he was like, what did you say? You say you, you get love the freedom that you're given. What did you say? What was yeah. yeah, you should love the freedom that you're given. I'm just saying, like, drop, drop down on your knees and thank God that you were born in the United States of America. You're like, oh, I'm not reading that. Freedom isn't free. <laughs> oh, my God. Woo. So, yeah, that's Briggs Land from Dark Horse. It's a number one. It's from Brian Wood this week. I highly recommend it. Good that pick. is one lady that you do not want to mess with. Do not mess with you, Grace Briggs. You do not want to look her in the eye. Oh, boy. If you like, see her in the distance, put your head down and walk. Yeah, she's an intense lady. She's Yikes. The best. Uh, here we go. 
You know what we haven't done in a while? What's that? We're all done with the big picks. You know what usually comes after the big picks? Uh, croissant break. Nope, it's a taser. I was hoping it was croissants. Taser's been on the wall. It's been charging for a while. Oh, is man, it, that's going to hurt. It's at full juice. Okay, we have to be really careful with the taser because it's been it's at full juice, and it's been plugged in for a really long time, and I don't know what's going to happen. We'll find out by the end. Because it's so fully charged, we're actually, we have to do a two-part taser. Oh, boy! Yeah, there's it's there was too much information packed into that taser this week. When we were talking about it on the phone in our little pre-meeting, you were like, I think we're going to have to split it into two segments. I could hear the excitement. The research is there. The data is with us. I was very excited to do research for you, the listener, on a taser this week because we got to talk about and, and learn about image comics. So if we're going to talk about what, too loud? Oh, I just... Burp Jerusalem Garden in my own face. Nice. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, Lord. Image Comics <laughs> oh, God. today is consistently uh, in w- one of the top three comic book publishers. Behind Marvel, behind DC, you've got Image Comics. They are um, uh, a company that's built on the idea of creator-owned properties and creator freedom. Give me some of their big titles. So you probably know them from Saga. For instance, one of the biggest books in comics today, easily one of the big best-selling comic books of Vault of Midnight. Possibly in the industry right now. Possibly in the whole say, industry. You know, May- maybe the best ambassador for comics that we have right now, uh, Saga is. They're also doing Southern Bastards. They're doing, g- give me some. Manifest Destiny. Pick one. Uh, Wicked and Divine. Low. Go on and on yeah. and on. It's just, it, they're... Some of the, the best books that are happening in comics right now yeah. are coming out of Image. And the story of how we got to today uh, is completely fucking crazy. Yeah. So let's talk about the formation of Image Comics. And if we're going to talk about that, we should probably talk about the early 90s. What was the world like then, Nick? It was, uh, it was a weird world. Poofy pants. Poofy pants. Ben- Shaggy hair. George Bush was in office. Senior. It was a weird world. So the industry, <laughs> the comic book industry uh, is doing basically what it's doing today, about 300 to 350 million in sales and in single issues. Um, but there's, you know, there's not a lot of gra- not a lot of graphic novels or trade paperbacks to speak of. Mm-hmm. Um, at that point. So there's this whole section of the industry that's missing. And that just the industry just hadn't realized that there was a potential there for those? Yeah, it just wasn't a, as big a part of the comic shop of the direct market as it is today. So they're slinging on just a lot of single issues. It's mostly single issues, which is pretty crazy yeah. if you think about it, about how much money is coming through in single issues. Um, so yeah, these graphic novels are in their nascent stages. They're still figuring out how to do it. Um, and we're on our way in the early 90s. We're well on our way to the comic book boom that's going to take place a couple years later, the peak of the comic book industry that would precipitate the crash yeah. in the comic book industry. 90 of the top 100 selling titles at this point are Marvel books. Think about that. Think about how crazy that is. That's not... like So Marvel has been dominating comics recently, um, but it was just wacky in the early yeah. 90s. Yeah. Um, and a lot of those books are from creators like Todd McFarlane, Jim Lee, and Rob Liefeld. If you look at the best-selling comics for 1990 to 1993, like so many of them, 89 to 93 or whatever, so many of them are by these three dudes. Yeah, and it's like these guys were in the the like mainstream. Todd McFarlane was like getting interviewed by people. He was doing signings at public places. Yeah, this was like just starting to pick up with 
like the idea of the comic book creator as uh, the star of the book, like right. the actual star of the book. And this is really important. The other thing is that, and I hadn't really thought about this or realized this, but there's lots of different distributors at this point in comic book history. We have one distributor right now. It's Diamond Comics. That's the only distributor for uh, for single issue comics, right. right? So at this point, there's a few different ones and a couple other distributors are popping up. And all of these shops, they, because there's so much competition between distributors, they are offering these amazing deals to comic shops. Like, buy these amazing terms, pay us in 90 days, pay us in 120 days. Like, mm -hmm. here's great credit. Here's, you know, get all this all this sweet free stuff. These amazing terms, and you have all of these shops as a result just opening like crazy. The number of shops opening, and this is what is precipitating the bubble, right? right. Is all of these people are just opening shops, opening shops, opening shops. So you have a record number of shops, and they're just ordering books in crazy amounts. Yeah, and like a really good example of this is X-Men Volume 2, number one, is released in August of 1991, and it sells 8 million copies to retailers. That about, is, that's insane. That's that an insane number of comics. We were talking earlier in this episode about Justice League number one yeah. being the number one selling book of the month. That was 209,000 copies. Right. <laughs> it's almost oh unbelievable. God. Yeah. An 8 million copy comic book. Um, and it's, it's it just, it, being someone who works in the industry today, it's not a number that we would ever expect to see. But mm -hmm. I do have a question. Uh, did they have returnability? Nope. So nope. we have no returnability now. No returnability at this point either. <laughs> so there's just 8 and, million. And this was, as we will see later, this number is a problem. Yeah. yeah. Like the fact that anybody would order 8 million of anything turns out to be a huge symptom of like a larger problem that's yeah. bubbling beneath the surface. But all we know at this point in history is that comics are a, a, are booming, right? Um, Mark Marvel has 60% of the market share and they're making half of all of the money that the industry is pulling in, which is nuts. Right. Um, and the other crazy thing is that it's all coming from publishing all of their money. It's not really coming from licensing or toys or video games mm -hmm. at this point. It's all coming from selling comics and a lot of these, so Tim Burton's Batman was just released, so people are starting to see that there's other opportunities for like, you know, there's other ways to make money with comics, but at this point, all the money is coming from selling books to people that are buying books, and really to retailers that are buying the books, right? And that means that all of this is really being fueled by the talent. And that talent, specifically some of the talent at Marvel, is uh, driving what is, you know, this incredible growth for the industry at large. Who were some of these writers and artists, Marcus? Yeah, so the biggest one is Todd McFarlane, and he is the king of Spider-Man at the time. And Spider-Man's doing some really amazing things. Um, he, it, just to like show how popular he was in the 90s, just recently, some of his original art for Amazing Spider-Man number 313 Sold for $71,000. That's how yeah. much of an impact oh, this dude has had on a generation. Um, but, you know, he starts out with Marvel. He gets a huge break uh, doing Amazing Spider-Man. Becomes the biggest name. And we see that still today. As someone who buys back issues for Vault of Midnight, 
I know, and I know other back issue buyers and resellers know, like, Todd McFarlane, Amazing Spider-Man, sells, and it sells quickly. And it's interesting because it's not commensurate with its rarity. Not at all. It's all fondness yeah. for Todd McFarlane. It, it's that, and, like, there's a good amount of it available. Like yeah. we were saying, they're printing a ton of this shit. Yeah. But people just have a nostalgia for Todd McFarlane and will buy those immediately. Yeah. And he's he's the biggest name who's kind of driving this force. Yeah. Another big one's Jim Lee. He is the uh, penciler for that Uncanny X-Men number one we were talking about. Again, it sold over 8.1 million copies. It holds the Guinness Book of World Records to date for the highest selling comic book of all time. And it's really interesting. Jim Lee, uh, he's like the uh, the most likable dude if you watch interviews with this guy, um, he attributes a lot of this success to Uncanny X-Men for like, he had a fondness for those characters because they were seen as outsiders. And he's Korean American, didn't know English when he came to the United States. So he felt like an outsider. And that's where he attributes a lot of the success for this book. But he is just uh, a force to be reckoned with at the time. Um, and then we have Robbie Rob Liefeld. Oh boy. Who we've oh, talked Rob. about a ton on this podcast. Yeah. And we don't need to reiterate a lot of it. Okay, but this is, it, it is worth getting into what's yeah. going on with this too. Because especially by his telling of it, image is, doesn't happen without Rob Liefeld. In fact, it was his idea for like, it, the name image comes from Rob Liefeld. He had, a, he had a concept for a self-published company that he shelved and gave up on early in his career and brought back for, for this yeah. thing. But instead, he moved on and made his own imprint. Um, yeah, so Rob Liefeld is doing Uncanny, or he's doing X-Force right now. He's doing New Mutants. He's, he's really well known for being the co-creator of Deadpool mm-hmm. or the creator of Deadpool, if you talk to him. Um, the, if you love polybags and you love holographic trading cards in your comics, you can thank Rob Liefeld. For better or worse, the dude is a marketing genius yeah. at the time. He is moving comic books. He's a big fucking deal. He has just he has such a distinctive look. Him and Todd McFarlane are known as the bad boys right. of Marvel Comics. Yeah, because every 13-year-old boy wanted to read it because it just looks so cool. They've also like, you know, they've got a little bit more swagger and a little but, bit more mm-hmm. attitude. And they had a sense of themselves. Yeah. Those two dudes yeah. specifically had a sense of themselves as the talent. Like yeah. Lightfield was such a big deal. He was featured in a Levi jeans commercial. Right. Yeah. Really? Yeah. So like that's wow. how big, you, it would be like, you know, if Jason Aaron, you like saw him on a gene commercial, it just would never happen. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Rob Liefeld is just, he's a, I mean, he's a big deal. He's a very controversial figure. Big personality. He's got a Just big like you, Marcus. Person- oh, thank you for making that comparison. We'll talk about that later. You have uh, Mark Silvestri is another one. So he's, he's been working off and on X-Men since then. Um, he really hit, he was a big name at the time because he was doing the Wolverine spinoff. Got it. And and that was a big deal. We have Eric Larson. Um, he's like a dude who mostly is featured in small press. Got to start with a character he created in high school called The Dragon. Mm. That The Dragon would turn into uh, a launch title for Image called Savage Dragon. Oh, we'll get there. Yeah, and um, it's interesting to note, he has been putting out a monthly issue of Savage Dragon almost since the start of Image. And it is on issue 214 with almost no interruptions and no other writer pencilers. That's you, really impressive. Yeah, it's it's insane. Um, we have Jim Valentino. Uh, he's known at the time for doing Guardians of the Galaxy. He's a big name in Image because he takes over a lot of the business side of stuff once Image gets moving. Uh, he's a big reason that um, we have Robert Kirkman and Brian Michael Bendis working for Image later on. Then we have uh, Wills Partacio. Apologies. Uh, apologies for, for the name, sir. 
Um, he actually got recognized by Marvel at San Diego Comic-Con when he was a young man and started inking for them. It's interesting. He's the only quote-unquote founder of Image uh, that wasn't uh, a shareholder, mm-hmm. essentially. And uh, he's, he's kind of a side note because he shows up and then uh, he has some family stuff and he disappears pretty quick. But those are the founders. And it's, it's important because these dudes are huge names in the 90s. Yep. It's as if all the biggest comic creators right now got together and were like, we're done. We're starting our own thing, and that's it. And they all worked at one company, and everybody kind of knew it. So this, again, this is Todd McFarlane, Jim Lee, Rob Liefeld, Mark Silvestri, Eric Larson, Jim Valentino, and Mr. Portazio, who is a, kind of a bit player, but he's he's in the mix. So if, okay, that's a lot of people. It's a lot of people. And something has to be seriously screwed up for all of them to leave at the same time and pretty much go, fuck you, yep. we're doing our own thing. It's true. So and you have all of this stuff happening in the industry that we've been talking about. There's all of this money coming into the industry. And in, from 1990 to 1991, we have three of the best-selling single issues of all time. So Todd McFarlane's Spider-Man number one, two and a half million copies. Rob Liefeld's X-Force number one, five million copies. Blows that Spider-Man book yeah. out of the water. And, and then we have Jim... Sorry, go ahead. That's Deadpool's first appearance? No. No? Okay. And then Jim Lee's X-Men Volume 2, number one, and that's the 8.1 million copy that we've mentioned a, a few times now. So Marvel is far and away the biggest fi- uh, fish in the pond. All their money is coming from print and comic books, and these dudes know it. Um, and that by these dudes, I mean McFarland, Liefeld, Jim Lee, all of these guys, they, they know what's going on. Comic shops are buying comics like crazy at really unsustainable rates that don't reflect the demand from actual readers or collectors, but they're buying them nonetheless. So it looks like the good times are never going to end. Um, and because f- all for all of this hoopla and money and the stock increases, Marvel goes public during this time, and it just like starts raking in crazy amounts of money. The creators are still getting paid a page rate that's pretty paltry, and there's no ownership of their characters. They have very little creative control over what they're allowed to, the stories that they're allowed to tell. And they get no back-end residuals. There's no money from toys or licensing at all. So, I mean, Marvel's making a ton of cash. And I could understand how these creators would feel mistreated. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're, yeah. they are the reason that Marvel is making money right now. And they, they bring it up. You know, they have this legendary meeting with a bunch of creators that's kind of like uh, led by Rob Liefeld with Terry Stewart, where they aired all these grievances. Um, but they demanded ownership of their characters. They demanded royalties from their toy lines. And they demanded more creative control. And Terry Stewart basically told them to fuck off. Uh, no, why would we do that? Right. This is Marvel Comics, motherfucker, this is, is what I imagine that he said to him. Like, you guys are nothing without Marvel Comics. Of all the comic book meetings that have been happening, this is one that I, w- I think I would love a bug in the room. To be a fly on yeah. the wall <laughs> at that meeting would have been amazing. Because as far as Marvel concerned, people are buying Spider-Man. They're not buying Todd McFarlane. And that is a mistake on their part. And that is a mistake yeah. on their part. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, exactly. The, the culture at that point is like, you're the... You're just the biggest deal in the world if you're Marvel Comics. And it's important to notice that like, there wasn't a lot of small press that had any power. Yeah. So it's not like you were going to go to DC, even DC at the time, because Marvel's raking in over half of the comic sales. Yep. And so, like, oh, you, you, you're like, yeah, I hear that you have these grievances, but, like, where else are you going to go work and yeah, make go any money? Yeah, have fun doing, you know, newspaper comic strips. Right. Exactly. That's what your life's going to be like if you don't have Marvel. Yeah, and there's a, this thing in the air about, like, creators' rights. It's, like, starting to be talked about a little bit. But Marvel is and DC are nowhere near, like, actually ready to make that kind of commitment to, to folks. Mm-hmm. Um, so McFarlane and... 
uh, Liefeld and Co. They there are three or four of them. They go have a meeting with the editor in chief of Malibu Comics. Malibu, what is Malibu? So Malibu Comics? Comics is it's this little publisher that was founded in 1986. They would publish classic character series like Tarzan, and then they would do some other independent stuff on top of it. And they had access to distribution channels. So in other words, they knew how they knew the business of. Uh, making a book and then printing a book and then getting it out to distribution, which is not, you know, if you're just a dude that's drawing pages and giving right. them to your editor, that's and you're that's you know your mop, Todd McFarlane or whatever, that's something that you don't have a lot of experience with probably. Yeah. So, as a result of this meeting that they have with Malibu, they they form a partnership and uh, they in mass they quit Marvel Comics. All of those dudes mentioned. God, that would be. That would be a. A ter- that would be a terrible thing to witness. Yeah, it was uh, it was a huge deal. And it was like, and it made the actual news because Marvel's a publicly traded company, and their stock dropped by three dollars and twenty five cents a share when when news wow. when news leaked out about this. So uh, Malibu and this brand new company are formed. They're called Image Comics. Um, and again, the name Image from everything that I read, and maybe Marcus, you read something different, but from everything I read, it was a name that Liefeld was sitting on because he wanted to do his own creator-owned thing much yeah. earlier in his career, and he just went ahead and Dude's canned vis- it. He's a visionary. He's a visionary. <laughs> he did not design the logo, though. That was somebody else. Um, but uh, So Image Comics would run their imprint, their their own publisher, and Malibu would strictly do publishing, administrative, marketing, and production support. Um, Image Comics... It was really important to the Image Comics dudes that it was they were hiring Malibu for their support. They were not being merged or being purchased by Malibu. These dudes at the time, they just want complete control over their properties. Absolutely. That's like their biggest thing. So that and that is um formed in their the the ideals of the studio. So it's interesting. Image was actually as it was formed, it was broken into these six independent studios. So let's see. There was Todd McFarlane Productions, which obviously- who owned that one? Whoa, I don't know. Maybe Todd McFarlane. True. Uh, Wildstorm Productions, which was owned by Jim Lee. Highbrow Entertainment, which was owned by Eric Larson. Shadowline, owned by Jim Valentino. Top Cow, uh, which is Mark Silvestri, and Extreme Studios. Who who wants to guess who owns that one? I love it because once Rob Liefeld leaves Image, he creates awesome comics. Yeah. Extreme Studios, Dude. awesome comics. I'm Rob Liefeld. You couldn't make it up. If you made that dude up, you couldn't do it no. as well. And it, some of these production companies are still around and it's still kicking true. it. You know, I bet that that Rob Liefeld like has a storm cloud that follows him just so he can always have lightning in the background. <laughs> Ideally. <laughs> so there are some key provisions in the image charter. Image is basically founded on these two ideals. Are you ready for them? Yes. Image would not own any creator's work. The creator owns all of it. That's the important thing number one. Important thing number two, no image partner would interfere creatively or financially with any other partner's work. Image itself would own no intellectual property except the company's trademarks. Is that still true today? Yes. They've completely held that up? As far as I know, that is, and that's what I hope to get into in part two about like what the deal is with image publishing is today. Mm-hmm. But as far as I know, it, that's more or less the ideal. And that, that has a lot of reverberations, but those are the key provisions. And it's hard to overstate what a huge deal this is. It's yeah. a major shift. It's a huge, huge shift. It's one that we're going to see the consequences of 
come down the pipeline to other companies. And it's going to start a dialogue absolutely in the comic creating community. Yeah, about what what is the role of creative people in making comics, um, and it's gonna not it's gonna completely shake up the industry right now. It's gonna play a direct role into the collapse of the market in a few years, and it's gonna make these dudes superstars. And then it's all gonna fall apart in part two. That makes me really upset. So much drama. Image comic. The only other thing I want to say about this these. Before we end today, and I don't know what your guys' thoughts were about learning about all this stuff. I, I find it super, super fascinating. But these ideals, these founding ideals, are all about money. This is the big thing that yeah. stuck out to me. 100%. There's nothing in their mission statement about art or about the comic book industry or about readers or about putting out a quality product and making the best, making the best books ever. It's all about who owns what and who's getting what slice of the pie. And that speaks to how they were treated at Marvel, and yeah. it's a direct reaction to what they were experiencing with these other publishers and what the you know their complaints against the industry. Yeah. Um, but it's also, it's just very telling about the times and about these dudes and about the inevitable thing that kind of happened to this company, which is that it more or less crumbled. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you have no, and this is, I mean, it it, it works out in the end, but you have no editorial control. It kind over, of works out in the end, but yeah. yeah. But I mean, you have no editorial control over what you're putting out. It's a bunch of dudes who are just putting out their own shit. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it's right in their mission statement. No one has any control over the other. Yeah. Well, you're putting your logo on every single one of those comics. Mm -hmm. So even if you have a really big hit like Spawn, which we'll get into in part two, that doesn't mean that that logo isn't associated with a ton of garbage that you churn out and have no other say over. And and because of the way that they format this company, these dudes that, that have all kind of band together to create this beautiful thing are going to end up, a lot of them, hating one another mm -hmm. because they have no say in anything the other one does. It is a genius um, company philosophy, and it is also a very troubled company philosophy. Yeah, yeah. and it seems like for in, in a lot of ways today... We're glad that they did it the way that they did it, yeah. Because you know the, the the framework was there to build something really really cool. But as we're going to see next time, there's uh, it was it was troubled for the next few years. Yeah. It's just so funny. I think it's a little predictable too. Yeah. Like, I mean, you know, when you're a workhorse that nobody gives a shit about, and like you're constantly told, like, you know, people don't care about you; they care about what you produce. Then yeah, you're gonna you're gonna backlash and make something like Image, and then yeah, it's kind yeah. of expected to see it fall. I was just so struck by like these these dudes that are supposed they're the biggest talents in the industry, and they get a chance to make their own company, and what they put in their founding documents, it's all about money. Yeah, yeah. But I I also have to wonder like when you're when you when your life is run by a giant company like Marvel uh, or DC. Uh, you have somebody else doing a lot of this work for you. I wonder how much they, when creating a company on their own, how much they actually knew versus like how much they were just oh, guessing. Yeah. We're, we're going to find that oh, out yeah. for sure. Um, well, I'm super pumped for part two. Me too. I And we'll get into it next week. Can I ask you guys one more question Please. before we leave? What were you guys reading in the 90s? What was your favorite 90s comic? Oh my God, Spawn was my shit. <laughs> yeah. I, I, oh yeah, because your handwritten reviews. 
Oh my God! Next week you have to read one of your reviews of Spawn. If we can dig one up, I will read I it. I know oh, right where God. one is. Yeah, I I know the location of one. When Vault of Midnight first opened, I don't have to tell this fucking story again. I used to really like Spawn. I and I still do. I have a fondness for Spawn. Like yeah. I'm I'm I probably sound really cynical when I'm talking about some of this stuff, but like Spawn got me into comics. Image Comics got me into comics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Marcus I know for it... Curtis, if Curtis was here, Image Comics got him back into comics. Yeah. Uh, for me, I mean, like that Todd McFarlane Spider-Man run, uh, issue 300 in particular, I have a very intense fondness of. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That Spider-Man was the coolest shit. Todd McFarlane's web illustrations was unlike any other web we we had ever seen. And I remember it. It like, changed the art game. As a kid, I remember seeing that web yep. and being like, that's Todd McFarlane. Like, his web was weird and different, and he drew some three-dimensional elements to it that was just really innovative for the time. Mm-hmm. All of these dudes, it's so easy to make fun of it now. It's so easy because it's so stylized and it's so yeah. of a time, but, like, it changed everything, and nobody was doing anything like that Bishop? at the time. Like, Jim Lee is the co-creator of Bishop. Yeah. I despise Bishop now. <laughs> yeah. Bishop was a dude who had pouches for everything, could travel through time and shot a ray gun and had like a glowy eye. He was the fucking coolest dude to Teenage Me. I was like, I just want to read all about Bishop. I remember when the animated show brought Bishop on for an episode, I was in a fucking tizzy. I was so pumped. I was like, that's Bishop. We're going to travel through time. This will be fucking sweet. Like Bishop, Cable, those dudes were the coolest. And those are a product of these dudes. Absolutely. They know what 14-year-old boys want. Yeah. Pouches and giant guns on guns on guns. Cool. Yeah. And that's going to do it for us today. Our producer and editor and our special guest today is Rachel Polk. Our music was created by A-Bomb. Super Skull is recorded every week at the Ann Arbor District Library. Please subscribe, download, and review Super Skull on iTunes. It'd be really, really awesome and helpful if you could. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and our website. Super Skull Show is how you find us. Super Skull is brought to you by Vault of Midnight, Earth's finest comic books and stuff and podcasts since 1996. My name is Nick Weibar. I'm Marcus Schwimmer. And I'm Rachel Polk. And not and wait after you knock on the door. Every time you knock on a bathroom door, please. This is not a joke. Podcast personality, go. You know, activate your podcast personality, or you know, a personality. Marcus, oh, burn on Marcus. I have more personality than both of you put together. That's actually kind of well, maybe that's true. Actually, you're you're a louder volume. Yeah, that's all I need. (laughs) That's what that's what personality is. (laughs) My mom says I have a great personality.